Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a great episode today with the one and only Paul Valancourt, great improviser and coach and instructor, and he's written a couple of really great improv books. We talk about all of that and more. It's a fun chat, but first, real quick... I wanted to use our airwaves, so to speak. I guess it's still airwaves, even though it's podcasting and not not radio, right? Is it? I don't know, but yet I'm still going to ask you to nominate us for the podcast awards. <laughs> Are there airwaves when it's a podcast? I don't know. But could you still nominate us in five categories in the podcast awards? Just go to podcastawards.com. And we also have a link in the bio that explains how and where to nominate us. But it is just podcastawards.com. And there are five categories to nominate us in. The Adam Curry People's Choice Award, Best Male Hosted Podcast, Best Black Hosted Podcast, Comedy Category, and Rob Has a Podcast Entertainment Category. And no, that's not best friend of the show, Rob. I still don't know who that Rob is, but I hope he's well. Nominations close on July 31st. All right, well, let's get to today's episode. As I said, it is with Paul Valancourt, and it's a really great episode. He has a lot of great things to say. It's really fun to chat with him. So let's just get right to it. Here's my chat with Paul Valancourt. You are from Maryland, correct? Yes. Well, mostly, yeah. Uh Mostly, okay. And you did drama in high school, and I know I did. You, you did improv in college at University of Meriden, Maryland College Park, and you, you went on to get your master's in theater at Northwestern. I did. Um, which tons of comedy people have come out of Northwestern, like so many big names. Uh, yeah. Uh, Seth Meyers, Nicole Sullivan, David Schwimmer. No, they were- they were just uh, Seth and Nicole were just ahead of me. Like maybe oh. I was in the master's program. I, I think they did the undergraduate program, like maybe a couple yes. of years before I got there. Yeah. Um, and even Stephen Colbert was there uh, at Northwestern. Yeah. I was well out of college when I started hearing uh, all these comedy heroes of mine who went to Northwestern. And I thought, was I supposed to go to Northwestern? Was that what was supposed to happen? <laughs> I don't know. It was definitely a great environment. I'll tell you, I really lucked into it because I was really sort of in the neighborhood to go to Second City. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, I'm here and I'm I'm sort of like moving down this path of getting more and more into quote unquote professional theater, professional improv or whatever. So I was taking class at Second City at the same time that I was taking class in Northwestern. But I'll sort of say that Northwestern was sort of my secondary goal. It was really a lucky um, break or coincidence that I ended up there and ended up really, I think one of the great sort of infrastructures that was already in place when I got there was this show called the meow show, which yeah. is their improv and sketch comedy show, which is great because it's so like at university of Maryland, where I started with erasable ink, um, it was just sort of student run student, whatever. And it was just kind of like, 
you know, like improv, it was an improv show. We would do it weekly and we kind of just like had a couple of chairs and was all loosey goosey or whatever, but it wasn't really sort of like, uh, sort of, you know, thought out or put together, you know, we would have uh-huh. rehearsals and that kind of stuff. But when I got to Northwestern, the meow show is a real critical part of their student affairs, oh, wow. um, uh, student activities thing where, cause it generates money for the student activities. It gets some money, which is mm-hmm. for an improv show to get money to put on a show was crazy. But then we, uh, then we, it sort of generates money back out into the, into the system. So it was really, it was really great because it was kind of like a f- more formal sort of version. So we had set designers who built stages and we had a band and all this kind of great stuff. And we got to do two different weekends of shows and sketch of improv and sketches and stuff. And it was really great. I think that was a real uh, benefit for me just having, I just kind of graduated second city as that came into focus for me into in my second year of graduate school. And I was like, Oh, this is it. It was like, I had this, this, this education, this learning that I had done at second city and done my sort of like graduation show or whatever. But then what, then you sort of, I guess you auditioned to get into second city, but if you, haven't done that yet. What do you do with it? Well, what I did with, with it is I got to direct this, uh, this meow show with some great people. And, uh, it was awesome. That is awesome. That sounds very awesome and exciting. I'm trying to figure out the, uh, I'm trying to connect some dots chronologically Okay. because I know that you did the improv even before Northwestern and second city and, and college. Yeah. Um, was the number one, where was the first place you trained? Was it Second City? No, the first place I trained well was with my. Uh, well, that's sort of a great question. Um, I saw my first improv show like my second week of college. Okay, right at University of Maryland. My friend Thomas was in the show. And he's like, "Come and see the show." I tell the story all the time, and I saw the show, and it was like super clear to me, like a calling to mm-hmm. the priesthood. I was like, this is it. Right. That was the so, second question was what sparked you about it, but continue. So I saw this show and I was like, oh my gosh. And I've told the story before, but I love telling it. I, my top, my friend said, Thomas said, I'm in this show, come and check it out. And the second half of the show was a Herald. The first half was short form. The second half was a Herald. And there's a guy questing, trying to find out who makes Muzak. And then at the very end, he's like, I'm going in there. And these guys are like, no, you're not. It's less than he pushes past these guys. He's like, you, you make Muzak, Paul McCartney and Paul Simon and John Lennon. And the guy with Paul McCartney spoke up. He's like, right. We usually make the Muzak first and jazz it up for everyone else. And I was like, <laughs> like that like totally blew my mind. And that was, it's so rare in life. You can sort of trace the beginning of something. But that was for me, 1 million percent. Like I said out loud to myself quietly because there's an audience, but I was like, that's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Uh, And pretty much that was it. That just caught the fire in me. And then I was ready to go, but I didn't join that group right away because I came to California actually at Cal state Northridge Mm -hmm. and was in, um, I was on a student exchange, but here in America, not going anywhere except just going to California. I was Uh in Northridge and I lucked into, they had just started an improv program there. So I was like, what? I can get college credit for doing improv. That's amazing. (laughs) So I hooked up with this class and we were started a improv group sort of as a class. It was called uh, the CSUN scene machine. I haven't talked about that a lot. CSUN scene machine, or we're also called laugh or die at one point, but Uh the the professor, this guy, George Gunkel was really sort of interested in this arena. And so he had just kind of started this exploration and here's how early it was in the process. Like there was like no books about improv at the time. The Uh books that we use were like the inner game of tennis, the inner game of golf, 
some scribbled out notes they had found from some other places. We ended up sort of, he ended up getting a, a professor to come in and teach us from Spolin, this guy, Randy Brenner, and he came in and taught us some Spolin stuff. But at the time, like I was like drawing from my observations of this improv group that I had seen at Maryland and this new information coming. So I was sort of like kind of pulling in a lot of different influences and just, I could not eat it fast enough. I was just like, oh God, God, with both hands, I was like, ravenous for it but at the time there wasn't a ton of that going on right you know so it's really crazy so i was here on exchange for a year in california for a year did like this whole improv journey or whatever and then ended up my exchange was over i went back to maryland ended up joining erasable Inc. and then directing erasable Inc. and then after that and so my so that was like continuing my training we were teaching each other you know how Mm -hmm. how improv groups Mm -hmm. were back in the day you just would the next generation, the previous generation would teach the next generation. That's kind of how it went. It was just an oral tradition, like thing to thing, especially in Maryland. There wasn't like, um, there wasn't anything like, you know, any of this groups in Baltimore or DC that, that didn't really exist. It was all college groups, just sort of like sharing and this kind of thing back and forth. Right. So then when I graduated in Maryland, I ended up sort of taking sort of like a gap year before grad school and doing, uh, I did comedy sports in Virginia. Okay. Yeah. That's where I was wondering when that came into it. Yeah. Yeah. I did comedy sports in Virginia for a little while. And at that same time, I was taking a class from this guy who was offering this class uh, in the basement of the department of defense in DC. Me and my friends would go drive down to the DOD, (laughs) sign in, I go into the basement and do this <laughs> crazy class, but I, and I don't. I honestly, I cannot for the life of me tell you how I found out about that class or why we started going or anything. But it was really cool. This guy was really great. It was a lot of very spoliny sort of stuff, like right out of the book, spoliny stuff. And but the great sort of thing of that was he brought in Michael Gelman from Second City to do a two-day like masterclass workshop one weekend. I was like, I got to get in on that. And so that was, for me, that was a revelation because this is like someone who is like, this is a person who is a professional improviser. This Mm -hmm. is their job. They are, he knew a ton. He was great. So fantastic. He ended Uh up doing a couple of improv tips and whatever, but just to close the loop on Michael Gelman, the great thing about that was, and this is all like, I'll sort of cap this all at the end, but I'll sort of pull all the pieces together, hopefully like a herald at the end. But the the great thing about it being specifically Michael Gelman was a couple of years before, flashing back, flashing forward, uh, my group and I, Erasable Inc. from University of Maryland, had gone to what I think might have been the very first improv festival, the College Improv Festival. And it was like at Skidmore College. And it was like maybe six or eight or 10 improv college improv groups from all over. Amazing us, purple crayon, fools on the hill, cheap socks, like all these different ones. And, um, and he was the sort of the keynote instructor Mm -hmm. at this thing, which was amazing. And then we did, everyone was doing short form, short form, short form. And we were like next, we were next to last on the last day. There was one group after us. Mm -hmm. And so I said, as a director, I was like, let's, blow it out. We have like a half an hour or whatever. Let's do a Herald. And people are like, what? Really? I was like, yes, let's do it. And so we did this Herald looking back. It was like, mm, okay, or whatever. But <laughs> afterwards I was like thirst. I hadn't met Michael Gummy yet, but I was thirsty for his input. And he was mm-hmm. like, he said, man, that's the gutsiest thing I saw all night. And I was like, <gasps> and we just like lived on that little bit of inspiration for months. And I kept sort yeah. of like that really 
uh, I think aligned my compass in a way. And I just, that really made a giant difference. That little bit of sort of um, recognition or approval or whatever from him really made a difference to me and really uh, sort of set my compass. Like I said, and I, I always sort of tried to, to push a little bit, you know, and sort of do something different and not just do, especially we were doing tons of short form and, you know, I don't know how much short form we've done, but it's like, you can get in a groove and you're like, okay, and here's where the dingers are in this game. <laughs> right. In that game. Just like, it's just like a machine, you know, laugh machine. Uh-huh. So it really encouraged me to always push a little bit, you know, but that's, that's like cool. the whole chronology. So when I sort of saw him at this thing, I was like, do you remember us from this <laughs> festival? He's like, Oh yeah, I remember that. I was like, Whether or not he did, he was very, very nice. Uh, and said he did. And then he ended up being one of my teachers in second city. So I have like this sort of like three, three act uh, sort of encounter with Michael Gellman. That's cool. Before we get to the Chicago life that you led before going back to LA, when you were first yeah. in LA for in college, mm. you mentioned that the, there were no improv books and they uh-huh. were the books that they offered were like the inside game of golf, the inner like, game of tennis and the okay. inner game of golf, because they're really, they're books about um, silencing your inner critic huh. and, and performing under pressure. Right. So wow. these are the books that, that our teacher sort of had figured out. Oh, let's start with these. Yeah. And when Randy Brenner came, he introduced us to, Viola Spolin's book, obviously, and um, and stuff like that. But that's how early in the process it was. There was like Viola Spolin's book was pretty much the only one, and I hadn't even heard right. of it until I got to Cal State Northridge. That's very interesting. Um, I love stuff like that, where something that's kind of outside of improv or even performance, as far as art is concerned. Um, can still impact and influence someone and, and be instructional. Yeah. Yeah, it was because it was really all about mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not, as you said, like not, not at all about improv for sure. And not at all about performance, stage performance per se, but it's a lot about mindset and silencing your inner critic and, and aligning your, your sort of inner <laughs> thing, getting yeah. ready to go and perform this task, tennis or golf or whatever. Right. Oh gosh. I love that. I, that's a, a good suggestion maybe for people to try to look into. Uh, if they're improvisers and and struggling with their inner critic, for sure, I think that's I think that's one of our biggest things is as artists of any stripe is mm-hmm. trying to silence our inner critic and really listen to our inner child or inner artist voice and mm-hmm. not get not compare to each right. other, not sort of beat yourself up, you know, all those things for sure. Absolutely. I think I was very, you know, when, when I got to work with Dell, he said this, this quote to us one day that I just really rang a bell in me and I just memorized. He said, when you're young, you got to move around a lot so that the coincidences that in retrospect seem like destiny can find you. And I really sort of think that's the case for me. Like I look back at like, if I hadn't, you know, met Thomas, I wouldn't have seen my first improv show and I wouldn't yeah. have gone to this. And I, then I, when, when I went to California, I wouldn't even have thought about, you know, joining this improv group. And then I wouldn't have gotten introduced to Viola Spolin. And then I wouldn't have been able to go back and, you know, it's like all the dominoes, like one falls directly onto another, you know, it all yeah. kind of makes sense in retrospect at the time. even as I'm telling the story, it's sort of disjointed, but at the time it all seems like, well, I, I guess this, but it's all, it's all destiny. It all sort of one leads one thing to another, you know? Yeah. And one with one thing leading to another, you end up in Chicago, you're at Second City, and then eventually you're also at I.O. 
And and as yeah. you mentioned, studying so, under Dell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at Second City. I graduated, and then I was at Northwestern, and I graduated. But in the Meow Show that I was mm-hmm. doing was Ed Herbstman, who's one of the founders of the Magnet Theater. Yeah, yep. uh, And he and he and I were in the were in uh, Meow together, and he was like, "You got to come to I.O." And at the time, I really hadn't even heard of I.O. I'd heard of uh-huh. Dell, and he was sort of this mythological figure, sort of <laughs> shrouded mystery or whatever. But he was like, "You got to come to to I.O." And I was like, "Okay." And so I came to I.O. and I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is fantastic!" I saw the family that was like the house team at the time; they were amazing, and I was like, "Oh." This is the, this is clearly the next step for me. I got to go do that. So, you know, I was lucky to have those sort of lucky moments where someone's like, well, think about this or try this or come check out this or whatever, you know? Yeah, that seems to be a, a recurring theme in your story is that something that excites you and just seems interesting, even if it's very different than the thing you were just doing, you go for it. Because you, you were doing comedy sports, which is short form, and then Second City, <laughs> which a lot of people wrong or right kind of equate to sketch, even when it's the improv uh, world, they'd look at it as improv to sketch. And Mm -hmm. then IO is a different form or approach to improv. And you are absorbing as much as you can at any of these places or all of these places. Yeah, I was really lucky to, and I also sort of really appreciate the order in which I sort of found those things because doing long form, or sorry, doing short form in college and then doing it at comedy sports just kept sort of ramping up that sort of like short form muscle. And for me, what I really, when I got into long form, what I appreciated about short form was that it really taught me a sense of attack and really getting after it, right? When people come from acting maybe straight into long form, they sometimes struggle with that sense of attack on the scene that they don't mm-hmm. really get after it. And in, in short form, you know, you have a certain amount, you have that scaffolding of the structure of the game that supports you. So you can really take big swings, mm-hmm. you know, and that's one of the things that I, I was just glad that I got it in that order. And then, um, and that really helped me. I think when I got to long form, that really helped me sort of uh, amongst my peers really be a strong improviser. I didn't have to, um, I wasn't sheepish about taking a big swing, you know, and I think that really made a difference for me in a lot of ways. Yes. And, um, and I think that that sort of approach, even if someone's just at one theater, uh, is still, I think, going to be long-term beneficial for them because, you know, they can, if, let's say someone's at the magnet, they, can start with improv and they can go to musical improv, then they can go to sketch or they can go to sure. storytelling. And and all of those things will end up supporting each other. It's not like you're compartmentalizing. It's all becoming a part of the way you view doing any of those things. Absolutely. And I feel like one of the things that I saw in my very first improv show that I really love that I sort of um, try to sort of nurture in my students and sort of keep alive in myself is the idea that you bring your whole self to it, right? Mm-hmm. So whatever, when I started, when I saw my first improv show, I was in college for studying philosophy. I ultimately have my degree, mm-hmm. my undergrad degree in philosophy. So, but I got to bring that, that approach or that sort of whatever thing I learned in philosophy, <laughs> lots of different things I imagine, <laughs> to improv. And then like when I, um, you know, did short form, I got to bring that to my improv. And then when I did, when I was in, um, I was sort of in uh, uh, 
uh, opening night, the, the improvised musical for a little while. I brought mm-hmm. that to mind. And you, you just bring all these different, like you said, you're sort of just putting tools in your tool belt, you know, and some tools, mm-hmm. oh, well, I don't use this tool anymore. And you sort of like jettison, but you sort of find that sort of, you know, you're deepening your experience. And the thing I love about it is whatever you learn, whether it's about improv or not, you bring to the table. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about some more of your time in Chicago. Okay. Um, were you one of the first performers to do an improvised movie? Is that correct? Or or did you come kind of a little after uh, the beginning of that? Well, when I was in Chicago, it was really a super exciting time. Dell was young enough and healthy enough to be super creative. And the family were like all stone cold killers who were there for it. They were ready to go. And so when I got there, the Herald was the only long form that we had. Okay. Yeah. And so, but then during that time, the family did under Dell's direction, they did a show called uh, Dynamite Fun Nest, mm-hmm. and or sorry, first they did Three Mad Rituals, which was a Herald, um, and a deconstruction, and an improvised movie. And so they had made these two new forms, and then they did a show called Dynamite Fun Nest, which was uh, a deconstruction an improvised movie, and I think an impressionist horror, another new form. So then all of a sudden it was like, oh, we can make new forms? And then all of a sudden it was like, boosh, boosh, like this great sort of like improv awakening. People like, oh, well, what if we put scenes together like this? Or what if we show it like that? Or what if we do this or whatever? And for me, that was like super exciting because we had the Herald, yeah. which I rather love. And I thought it was really interesting. But when I saw when I saw the family do the improvised movie, again, that was one of those things where I was like, oh, that's what I got to do. I love that. So <laughs> so at that time, the family was sort of like at the peak of their powers. They made the movie and it was like one of the sort of regular classes at I.O. was like deconstruction and movie was a class together. Mm-hmm. And I took that class with Matt Besser as my teacher. And then mm-hmm. the family started to sort of fraction off like uh Adam went to Second City and uh, I think Neil went to Second City and they were starting to sort of like kind of had run their course and they were sort of like going their own separate ways. Ian and Matt went to start UCB, that kind of thing. And so, so, so the movie was just there. And so my team, which was called at the time the tribe and then became bitter Noah, we adopted the movie as our signature form. And so we were the only ones really kind of doing the movie and performance. Everyone else was doing heralds or whatever. And we decided we were going to do the movie. And so we started doing the movie and I, that's sort of my sort of years long love affair with the movie for sure. Yeah. You were at IO at a really interesting time and got to see a lot of people that everyone is, you know, looking up to yourself included, but uh, you know, everyone is, all these legends were there when you were in Chicago. It was a crazy time. Like Matt Besser was one of my teachers. Mm-hmm. Ali, who started the 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 Pit Theater, was the one bit, of my yeah. teachers. Adam was sort of in the mix. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Neil. I got to play with Neil, who's been on yeah. TV a ton, and Pete Holney, and all these guys. And then the very first team I ever coached was uh, had Amy Poehler and Tina Fey on. It was just like oh, a crazy wow. time. It was like bang, 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 <laughs> like all these kinds of crazy things. And like Chris Farley had just sort of graduated out and just like all these different, it was like a really sort of, um, I don't know if you ever read this book about, uh, it's about sort of excellence. And it was a real hotbed. It, it sort of had sort of gotten enough sort of momentum that it was now drawing people in from all over. And that right. just like sort of made, like turned the temperature up and made the pressure cooker cook more. And also it was like this, the, it was a kind of a wide enough open space at the time. You know what I'm saying? There wasn't, 
a million improv theaters. There wasn't like, we hadn't been doing it for 50 years or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, it was like really still pretty new. So when you have a wide open space like that, and then a bunch of sort of young people super hungry for it, like it's, it was great. It was a really great time. I really look back on that uh, time with a lot of uh, <laughs> a yeah. nostalgia for sure. Yeah. One of the uh, things you mentioned there was that you performed with Neil, Neil Flynn, yeah. for those who don't know, uh, the middle and and scrubs scrubs mm-hmm. and um the team you one of the team i don't know if you're on multiple teams with them but the legendary team everyone knows about beer shark mice uh can we talk about how that team got put together because you have you continued to perform for many many years um yeah for sure yeah. i first got to perform with neil um when so during that time when the family was sort of like expanding and people were going different directions, mm-hmm. they were, they were sort of right in the middle of their run with, um, with dynamite fun nest. And so they needed uh, some fill in players just to fill out the cast a little bit. And so one night, one afternoon, Sharna calls me and she's like, do you want to play with the family? And I was like, what <laughs> do I? I was yeah. like terrified and thrilled and excited. It was like really going from like, for me, it was like going from like little league to the majors. It was like yeah. crazy. And it, here's, here's how crazy it was. I showed up with like with my button down and a tie on and they were like, what are you doing? It was like, clearly I was the nerd of the first day of school. And I was like, are we here to do an improv show? And, uh, but they were really cool. And I ended up sort of being their regular fill in guy. And, um, and then when we came to, and then when I came to LA and I started the IO West out here, mm-hmm. that team actually came together without me. That team mm. is uh, Dave uh, Keckner, Pete Holney, uh, Mike Coleman, Neil Flynn, um, and and Pat McCartney originally. Am I missing mm-hmm. someone? I feel like I'm missing someone. Um, and Pat McCartney originally, and then. Um, and then Pat McCartney moved back to New York to do some some other sort of theatrical work. And again, they were shorthanded. And I ended up being their regular fill-in guy okay. until one day Pete Holney goes, you know, you're on the team, right? Just show up. I was like, <laughs> okay, you know, unceremoniously. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's how the team came together. It came together really as just people who were, who were friends. In LA. So just yeah. guys who would hang out, expatriates from Chicago, kind of all knew each other, okay. uh, just kind of hanging out. Okay, cool. Very nice. And, you know, in talking about, like, being asked to be on the family and being giddy but also nervous about it, what was that experience like at at that time? I mean, you were seeing all these people who went on to be legends. They were already people you were looking up to at that time. Um, What was the vibe or the sense at the time were was everyone just sort of like yeah of course adam's going to be a big deal and of course tina fey is going to be a big deal or was it like these are more people who are just great to watch and see yeah we were all just sort of like doing our things you know what i'm saying and i i think that like um i don't know i don't know that it was super apparent that anyone was going to be a big deal i mean i i knew who was who i really liked to watch on stage and stuff but i think that adam for my money, Adam really came into his own when he got into Second City. And then he sort of like was able to sort of focus everything he had on this idea and then uh-huh. ended up sort of, as I understand it, I don't want to speak out of school about it, but as I understand it, being one of the sort of creative forces behind the Frozen Herald uh-huh. um, 
uh, second city sketch model. And so I think that's what he sort of like came into his like full power for me. Yeah. And that was like sort of the beginning of his sort of, uh, yeah. journey. then he ends up at SNL and, and, uh, yeah. then, then in movies. Yeah. Um, what, how did you get over that nervousness of being asked to perform with people you were looking up to? Yeah. Um, I think that, um, Luckily, I think mostly it was just, um, I was excited. I was like, really, I was like, I'll, I'll sort of backtrack for a second. When I first saw the family, they were so good. It made me mad. It made me <laughs> mad and a little bit sad. You know, when you see a show, I know that like, feeling. God, damn it. Gosh, <laughs> they really nailed it, you know? Yeah. And then so at the same time, like leaving, go, I'd be like, oh man, they're, they're already a team and they're so established. I'll never get to perform with them. You have this sort of like, on we a little bit, you know? Yeah. So then came together. I was like, Oh, this is the universe. Like saying, here you go, kid, like give it a whirl. So, so when I got there, luckily, you know, I was like, this is what I wanted when I first got here, since I saw my first show, this is what I wanted. And then everyone, you know, I had done the forms and I sort of knew everyone enough and sort of had sort of associated with sort of mixed with people at parties and stuff. So they weren't strangers to me. So I knew them right. a little bit outside of the shows per se, but I think it was really great because everyone was just like taking care of each other and doing the work. And I, I knew the work and, and that kind of stuff. And I was just like, I'm just going to do my best and focus on the work and try not to focus on anything else. And, um, yeah, and that's what it was. I just focused on the work. And, and you know, yeah. in good improv, everyone's trying to make everyone else look good. And that's kind of what happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that uh, I am sort of experiencing now because I, during COVID, I was asked to sit in with uh, one of the big teams that I filled with people I think are hilarious and so good. And when I see them perform, I'm, I have that ennui you were mentioning. <laughs> like there's, it's so good. You're a little mad and a little sad, <laughs> but also yeah. really inspired. hundred um, <laughs> percent. Let's not, yeah. let's not leave that out of the mix. That little right. triad of mad, sad, and inspired for sure. <laughs> right. Right. It makes you want to keep doing it, not give up <laughs> trying no. to, to get yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is easy to, to get into that. Well, what am I doing here? But it is just as simple as, well, they just want me to be decisive and think about what's going on and be present. And they're going to help me. They're going to make me look good. I'm going to make them look good. For sure. And at that point, luckily, I had, I had um, sort of, as I said before, looking back, um, I had a few years under my belt. You know what I'm saying? I had done right. it in college for a few years, two different colleges for three different colleges for a few right. years. Right. I had done sec, uh, I'd done um, comedy sports, which was for money, like a professional gig in front of an audience paying audiences, you know? So I, I sort of like had those things going for me, you know, it was the, the only thing I needed to get over was sort of my sort of thing about them. But luckily, right. as I said, I'd sort of seen them at parties and stuff. So I wasn't like, oh my God, who's this stranger? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah. So, and, I, and I was pretty confident. It, I mean, in myself as an improviser, I felt like pretty good. I was like, okay, great. I'm, 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 I have what I need to do this. It was really just the doing of it, but it was like, right. it also sort of just came, I think part of it was, it just came out of the blue. I got the call at like four and I was there for you know, uh, <laughs> before the show at like seven thirty, it was like yeah, you didn't have enough time to, to like get too scared and bail. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I never thought of it that way, but that's probably a good. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, and I guess that book you read in uh, in California, those books also helped you yeah. the inner 
the inner game of tennis and the inner game of golf. golf. I mean, that had to have for sure something to lean on, and and that I got my inner game together. Yeah, exactly. So you started. I mean, you were directing in in college, but you mentioned you had coached a team. Tina Fey and Amy Poehler were on. Um, Yeah. What by that point do you think your principles had become, and have those principles really? changed and evolved over time have you started focusing on things in more recent years that you didn't really focus on in the 90s say that's a great that's a great question um i think sir at the time i was really sort of um focused on well i think to be perfectly honest anyone who starts teaching or starts coaching i think for the first couple years you're sort of mixing and matching and reblending and reiterating things that were said to you so you're sort of like recycling your experience and you're sort of, you have this storehouse of, of ideas and then someone does something you're like, oh, that matches with this note that I got. And you sort of are doing all that and you are developing your own voice. But for someone, to, I always think it's dangerous when someone just finishes a program, they're like, I want to start coaching. I have totally new ideas. Like, mm, okay, let's just let the old ideas shake out for a little bit and then we'll whatever. And I'm not, I'm not saying like the old is the best or whatever, but I think there's, you know, uh, yeah. we're definitely... Uh, as Brian O'Connell said in the episode that that I just listened to, we're standing on the shoulders of what came before. So mm-hmm. let's not totally throw that out. Let's recycle yeah. that through our experience. And that's kind of what I was doing. So at the time, I was definitely focused on um, on relationship and uh, sort of I was still trying to figure out what what is the game of the scene. I have my sort of view of that now, but relationship and and uh, and having fun and following the fun idea. But in sort of all, at the, I'll be honest, in the beginning, in all sort of a vague way, you know, mm. when I was at Northwestern directing, yeah, we were playing games, and I understood that because you're just trying to sort of maximize sort of within a real clear structure. Once you get the long form, you're really looking at more physics, like giant ideas that apply to this moment. Like what is the learnable lesson about this moment here? Because I try not to give notes about a specific scene, you know, because it doesn't matter. Like it's not going to happen again. Right. You're not going to ever be in a, if you're ever in a scene where a crocodile is a policeman, here's what you should do. Like, (laughs) you know, so you have to sort of like abstract back and look at the bigger idea of like, okay, well, and it comes down to the basics. A lot of times a yes. Mm -hmm. And, and, and were you listening? Did you miss that? Like, what is, you know, how can we sort of maximize that idea? These sorts of things. Um, So I think, I think at the beginning, I was sort of reiterating a lot of stuff that I had heard and versus now I feel like, with a number of years in the game, I feel like I have a clear vision of, of how I think it works, a clear vision of what I think my model of the universe is. Mm-hmm. And so I can use, I feel like I can leverage that more effectively and more forcefully to help people get to good scenes or, or sort of get to what they want to get to mm-hmm. uh, more efficiently. I'm not sort of feeling around for it as much. Right. Sometimes I am. That, that exploration yeah. is fun. I definitely try to keep that alive, but I do, understand certain things about the physics of how it works. So I'm able to really hone down on those things with more force and more certitude. Right. And I assume a lot of that approach is something you went into when you became artistic director at IOS. West. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I became artistic director of IOS, West, when I started the, the IOS and was sort of the, the artistic director, I wrote, for my level one and for level two and level three, I wrote a curriculum sort of like tracing out those 
those ideas and those principles and those values through those levels so that you could see, oh, okay, so the one thing really clearly um, built on the previous thing, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But that's sort of like one mind working on it. When you start getting other teachers involved, in it, then that thing has to evolve and change because they bring their thing to it, right? Right. I feel like sometimes um, one of the one of the complaints that people had about IO sometimes was like was that it was a little disjointed. It didn't have that one creative um, voice or voice to it yeah. to guide it through. Because one teacher would approach it this way, one teacher would approach it this way. But I wasn't. But we students weren't sure that we were even though we were, had different approaches that we were approaching the same thing. Mm, interesting. You know? And that's, and that was hard for them sometimes, you know, and, the, and I would like in level three, I would give a note and they were like, well, in level two, so-and-so said this, she's like, okay, well, let's try to contextualize that and see what we mm-hmm. can make. Is there a way that these things all work together? You know? Right. And also it, sometimes those notes are made for the person they're speaking to because they're the type of thinker that they are, but that, you know, when you're thinking about in a general sense, that would be difficult for just the the average student to hear notes that feel contradictory like that, even though they aren't necessarily. Yeah. And I think sort of, I, I think that's true. And, and by the same token, I mean, all the teachers bring something different to it. We all sort of value or think about different things, you know, so I, that's what kind of I liked about having uh, different teachers at IO when I was a student. And what I sort of really thought was great about IO when I was a teacher or whatever was having different teachers. Cause you hear from different people. And I would see right. a teacher who's, I was teaching level one, or he'd see a level two teacher and they'd be like, Oh yeah, I was just talked to so, or I would see a student who I have in level one. And they're like, Oh, so-and-so teacher just said this. And I'm like, I said that a hundred times, you know, <laughs> but when they hear it a different way from a different teacher, then it lands with them. And that's yeah. fine. That's okay. That, as yeah. long as they get the message, I suppose that's all that really matters. So right. I thought all those differences, all those differences are great. As long as we sort of like have like that straight kind of like, I think one of the hard things was we we all didn't necessarily agree totally on what was at the center of the work. If you under if you agree with what's at the center, then I think that all the approaches work great. If you can't agree with what's at the center, then you're a little bit trick. You're a right. little bit tricky. Yeah, and I is it maybe just kind of hard to define what's at the center of improv because there's so many different approaches to it. For sure. There's a million different approaches, but I think that if you're at a school, I think that one of the things that, that really makes a school a school is here's our point of view. Here's our, yeah. At IO, we believe that it's relationship-based improv. It's about relationship first. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. So let's all focus on that idea and put that at the center of our teaching, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. At UCB, it's game. It's they game. believe that. So that's at the center of their teaching. And at you know Revolution, it's stated as... Game-driven, relationship-based, game-driven, two-person scenes. Right, right. And I feel like that is a good way maybe to also put your book, which I loved, Triangle oh, of thanks. the Scene. Thank you. I found out about that book because Jaris Donovan was teaching a workshop I was in, and she raved about it. And that was, uh, I think, one of the first times I heard about you. It was years ago now. But I, I said, okay, I got to check that book out. I did, and I thought it was, I, I still think, and I've read a lot of improv books. I still say it's one of the best improv books. Wow, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. I it's, mean, uh, it's so clear, and it's so helpful, and I think it's so applicable 
to so many different things when it comes to performing, whether it's improv, different forms of improv, or if you're trying to write a script, or if you're trying to act a scene uh, that has, that is scripted. Yeah, I think that's that really means a lot. I appreciate that. I mean, it's it's sort of when I talk about sort of my evolution from the '90s to more recent times, that that book is like is the result of that because I mm. felt like when I first started teaching, even when I was, uh, you know, sort of the the artistic director of iOS, I was still sort of a little bit in sort of the mystical experience model where I was trying to do exercises that would give people feelings and experiences. And they would sort of like try to get back to that in sort of a general way. Right. Mm -hmm. And then one semester after at at the end of the class, we would always, students always fill out like uh, evaluation of the class, what worked for them, what didn't work for them. What did you like? What would you like more of less of? I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that's really important because that really helps the classes evolve. I thought that was really, I always really valued that, that, that feedback. You know, it's nice to hear, oh, you're so great. This class was awesome, whatever. But also I thought you talked too much. That was really important. Like early on, that was a note that I got. And I was like, you know what? I do. I talk too much. I need to talk less and let the students do more. That Mm -hmm. 100% affected the way that I teach 100% till today. And so, and so, but one time this woman uh, wrote, it was an honest, but I, she had really great handwriting that guys are usually have. So maybe that's a stereotype on my part, but this person with really fantastic handwriting, I'll say that wrote, I really feel like I have a set of tools that I can go out and use Mm. to make scene. Mm. And that little phrase like broke it all open for me. I was like, oh yeah, a set of tools. That's what people need. They need a simple replicable set of tools Mm -hmm. that they can use over and over again. Not like a, not sort of like a formula, right? Mm -hmm. But a set of tools, like a hammer, you know how to use a hammer. And once you know how to use a hammer, you can use it to build anything. And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's what I need to do. And so that's when I started to to really look at the class and examine as I was teaching it then. And I tried to say, well, what is really the tool of this? Like, what is the, the sort of underlying thing that people can replicate? Mm-hmm. away from this general experience, although that's important. But then once they have that experience, then I can sort of pull back and say, okay, great. That experience is because of this tool, this idea that you can mm-hmm. grab by the handle that you can use. Once right. you have, A lot of times, once you have a name for something, it's much more useful to you because you can grab it and you can use it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm, I might get this wrong. The triangle of the scene Mm-hmm. The idea is that it's if you and I are in a scene together, it's your game, my game, and then how the game, uh, how how that bumps up against each other. Is that uh, actually it's sort of the your game and my game. So what what's your big playable game? What's my uh, big playable game? And then sort of oh, where are we or what are we doing? Right. Because that that's sort of like the context that that game is playing in, right? Uh-huh. So. In the book, as you know, I use I love friends. And I think that's a really yes. good example because because everyone's game is so clear, right? Yes. And so yes. it's like Ross, the nerdy one, and Joey, the dumb one, <laughs> getting their licenses renewed at the DMV. Okay, great. Even saying that, you as an audience member, as a player, Already you start know. to generate. Oh, okay. You start to generate ideas of what that's like. Right. That's Ross d- is going to be very. Te- you're supposed to go in the line like that. I don't even remember exactly what happened, but I just mean you can see. Totally. How Ross is going to be very technical and right. get annoyed with how Joy is not following the rules. 
Right. He's sort of lackadaisical or whatever. Who's like trying <laughs> right. to look at Ross's test paper or what? I mean, any of it, you sort of get it. Right. Yeah. And that's a different scene than Ross and Chandler, the sarcastic one. Because yes. those things, those two games rub up against each other in a different way. Yes. And that rubbing yes. up against each other can be affection. It can be conflict. It can be whatever. But it's like, I feel like each character has a game. And then just like I was saying about handles before, once you know that character's game, that's their handle. And mm-hmm. you can grab them and you can put them in another scene in a meaningful way because you know what right. they're going to do sort of. And so you can sort of now put something up against them, sort of like, I think a real great short form metaphor for this is world's worst, right? Yeah. Once you know, here's the game, world's worst, then you sort of come in with that things that bang up against that idea. <laughs> so once you know that Ross is nerdy, let's put him with things that are going to be like the world's worst thing for a nerd to deal with, or the world's <laughs> worst person or the world's worst situation, or how do we heighten his nerdiness or whatever, you know? <laughs> right. And it also gives the audience the, the, the gift of, of anticipation, the gift of anticipation, because we're doing a scene and then the nerdy one walks in. We're like, oh, he's not going <laughs> to like this or whatever. Now we're already in it before he's even said a line. Right. Know? Right. And that that gives you if you're on the sidelines, that gives you ideas on how to join the scene or how to move the scene somewhere else and tag someone out because. You're going to think, like you said, like, who is the world's worst person that's going to have to deal with this character I'm going to keep on stage? That really also foils into tag outs. You know, tag outs can run on this idea. Like, once I know that Ross is nerdy, I can tag out and sort of put in like ding, 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 just like keep hitting his his button. You know, right. I can just put tag out different people or situations him into that 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 highlight his nerdiness. Right. It's so helpful to know. And I. Even when I was reading the book, I know you're using friends examples in the book, but I was even thinking of like other shows. I was thinking sure. of like, oh, even I remember a scene from an episode of Full House where uh, Uncle Joey and uh, uh, Danny are both making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and Danny is doing it as the type A of got to be very clean and Joey's doing it the way a slob is doing it and they, they were bumping up against each other. And not only does it give the actors a specific thing or the improvisers a specific thing to play, I think it also gives them a specific way to play it because Joey in the full house scene I saw uh, was almost deliberately trying to annoy Danny. And so that's like a layer there that an, an improviser can put into the scene of, okay, here are two things that I think would match well, uh, their character, the way my character is. But I'm also going to needle them <laughs> about this. It gives me a little more motivation than just sure. the, the game that I have. It's, it's such sure. a beautiful it, way to approach it. it. That game is like that game is like the underlying skeleton of it. And then we add layers and layers on it. Like, cause I, well, why am I like this? Why, if I'm the great, if someone says you're so greedy, then why am I greedy? What does that mean to me? What's my, impre- yeah. what's my sort of interpretation of that. I mean, Scott Sedita has a really great book about this called the eight characters of comedy. And it's basically the same. He sort of really boiled it down that he thinks these are the eight characters. I feel like in improv, we sort of broaden that out in different ways, but it's that same thing. And it's really interesting when you sort of talk about different shows, listen, oh, the, the womanizer, like page on page. He's here, all the different womanizers from sitcoms and, oh, here's the intellectuals. Here's the whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, holy smokes. And you see these same sort of archetypes you know, playing over and over. And I think in improv, we sort of play a little more, a little differently. So I think there's more than it just eight, but it's a great reference point. And I recommend it to my students who are really interested in that facet of the work for sure. 
Oh, it's that's so great. It's it's really helpful. You have some of the best advice that I've seen people give on improv. And uh, I hope people also check out what you're doing online. Uh, you you started PV Improv. Is that the way? Is that the YouTube right. page? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't sure that was in Valancourt PV Improv. Yeah. Yes. And um, came across it recently, actually, and I, I hadn't seen it. And um, my girlfriend saw it because she was taking a class, and the teacher shared it. And well, that's uh, she awesome. was like. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, she said, hey, Jason, you'd be interested in this. This guy has a lot of stuff on his YouTube. And I was like, oh, that's Paul Valancourt. <laughs> <laughs> that guy. <laughs> I was like, oh, I should, uh, I should uh, ask him on the show, on the podcast. I'd love to talk to him about this. So um, how long ago did you start the YouTube channel? Uh, probably like five or six years ago, like right around the time that I, that I wrote the book, those two things sort of came out at the same time. Okay. Um, I'm late in the game when it comes to YouTube. I feel like only the last two years is when I really started getting into YouTube stuff. And I still have so much to uh, discover on there, I bet. Um, so yeah, you have uh, a lot of things on there that I think, uh, everyone listening should go check out. And, um, with so you started that kind of in concert with the book, uh, as you just mentioned. Yeah, I thought it'd be a great way to sort of like open up the discussion because you know a book is uh is such a static sort of thing, right? But improv is such a dynamic thing. I mean, that's why I include there the book has videos that go with it, mm -hmm. you know. And so part of the discovery of like how to make that happen was getting into YouTube. But then I was like, oh, okay, well maybe I can also sort of expand it out in this way. And then I really I think the the book and the YouTube both sort of come from this idea that like teaching a live class, I can affect or communicate or share with tw maybe tw maybe twenty people at a time. Mm -hmm. But a book or a YouTube channel is worldwide. Whoever wants to, whoever wants to get into it can get into it. You know right. what I'm saying? And it's, I've been really fortunate, lucky to have like people from Russia or Germany or the Netherlands or whatever, email me. Oh, we're, I was just checking out your YouTube. I have this question or thanks for doing this or whatever. It's been really great. It's been really um, interesting to see um, how people are using it and teachers are referring their students to, which I really appreciate. I think that's really great. I, I do it too. And I, teach a class, I'll write my notes and then sort of put in a couple of links to my videos or, or guest you guest tipper videos to really mm -hmm. nail down some ideas. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I think the one that she saw was with Jill Bernard. Sure. That's yeah. a very recent one. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one. Yeah. That's a very timely one about sort of uh, about sort of safety and in, in improv and sort of setting mm -hmm. the right tone in a class and stuff. I think that's really is a very uh timely provocative video. It's really it thought provoking. Sure. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was really great, and um, I'm planning on sharing it in uh, in a future newsletter. I know I'll share some other videos with uh, uh, our subscribers from the channel. Uh, you, I mentioned Revolution Theater, which was uh -huh. a, a, another theater you started out there, and I know you did some things uh, around in LA. Other than at IO, you did you you also performed at PAC, and uh, um, and then there's also Revolution Theater. Um, mm -hmm. what made you start that? Um, at the time, well, Revolution Theater has really pretty much closed down, mm. but uh, the journey basically is when IO West was closing sort of so abruptly, mm -hmm. um, there was a ton of, uh, you know, when I started IO West, I really uh, I didn't think about like how much 
ownership I would feel over it and how much responsibility I would feel, even though I only ran it for the first few years, got it up and running and started and stuff, but I was still involved like all the way through. But I just really felt like a sense of when someone would say like, oh, oh, I've been there. I was just there last week. I would feel personally proud, even though not my show, not whatever, but I feel proud because like I started that. That's really, that really meant a lot. I felt like really uh, sad, personally sad when it shut down. But, um, but I think that, sort of um so when it was closing down so abruptly i really wanted to give those people who were going to be displaced the community which is really the sort of the heart and soul of it all mm-hmm. i wanted to give them a new place to play and and all and classes and all that kind of stuff and so i started a revolution and uh and that was great and we ran for about a year and it was really awesome uh and so sort of what kind of had happened is like sort of some of the students went to Revolution, some went to West Side, some went to mm-hmm. Second City, some just sort of got out of it totally. But after about a year or so, I kind of recognized that I'm just kind of doing the same thing that I was doing before mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and starting over. And I, do I want to start over and do the same thing that I was doing 20 years ago when I started iOS? And the answer ended up being no. And I feel like a lot of those needs that I was sort of like wanted to address were being met elsewhere and probably more effectively or whatever. So I kind of, I kind of shut down that endeavor. And I mean, I've been lucky enough that, uh, that, I've been doing this a while. And so I've had a lot of really great invitations to play at the pack or at the West side or at the Acme or wherever. Um, so I get to keep doing it and I don't have to organize it. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good too. Yeah. Uh, with so many theaters this last year, having shut down due to COVID yeah. and, and people getting displaced and, you know, some people are thinking or have already started a new theater in a new place. Like, for the same reason that you started Revolution, what advice sure. would you give any of them to uh, go about that endeavor to make sure that that things are uh, on the up and up and that there is some longevity to it? Sure, I think that sort of um, one of the things that we have going for or someone has going for them now is that you know the world's opening back up and and there's been a lot of like. Um, you know, revelation of, of problematic practices in, in improv and in the world in general and stuff. So we can, as opposed to sort of retrofitting problematic institutions, you can start on the right foot. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's super important. When I was starting revolution, I tried to do that as well. Mm-hmm. I tried to sort of talk to uh, various stakeholders in the community who represented people who are not 54 year old white dudes who've been doing this for 30 years. Who else needs to be represented? Who else? What, what has worked for you in the community? What has not worked for you in the community? You know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's step one is sort of like, is is to sort of avoid those problematic practices right out of the gate. You know what I'm saying? I think that's, that's super important. One, two is as you're starting, I think it's really important to keep in mind as we said before, what is the artistic voice? What's the voice of this theater? What is it that we're about? What is it that we want to, you know, put out there? I think that sort of, you know, the annoyance has a super clear voice. I think that's one of the things that's really 
served them in such great stead over the years is when you see when someone's like, oh, I'm from annoyance, you're like, oh, okay. You sort of have a certain sense of how they're going to play, a certain sense of what they bring to it, the training they've had, the kind of shows perhaps that they've been involved in, right? I think that's really important. Second City, it sort of has a, has a kind of a way that they do it. IO had a way that they kind of do it. UCB had a way they kind of do it, you know? And so I think that those, I think sort of that's important because I feel like if you're just sort of doing it in the general, I don't think that's going to work out. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I think that people are really attracted to students and audience members are attracted to something that they, that they get, that they understand. Okay. Like when the rock does a movie, I'm like, Oh, the rock. Okay. Let's do this. I'm in or fast and the furious. Oh, this is not going to be a period drama. (laughs) This is going to be cars and jumping and crazy stuff. And I'm going to be laughing because it's so crazy or whatever, but I know what I'm getting. Right. Right. Same Mm -hmm. thing. I think when we, when, you know, I think sometimes we sort of let improv sort of exist outside of the normal physics of how things work. And if you're mm-hmm. going to do a theater and charge people money to come see shows and stuff, you are putting out a product. Right. And so part of the question is, what is that product? What do you stand for? What kind of shows are you doing? You know, and I think that's and I think sort of if you start with that, that's going to guide your training center. That's going to guides or what, how you put shows on stage and sort of curate evenings. One of the things that I learned that I'll share that it was super game changer for me from revolution was I was getting just a couple few months in, I was getting super, super burnt out mm-hmm. of just like booking shows because it was like, we weren't a training center. We had some classes, but we weren't a training center per se. So it's not like we were churning out students and teams or whatever. So I was booking shows from around the city. Mm-hmm. Right. But booking shows is a grind because mm-hmm. you're I get you're you're hoping that people are going to return your emails or your calls or show up when they say they're going to show up or, you know, a lot of the stuff. But for me, what made what was a real game changer on that was I went from booking shows to curating evenings. It's just mm-hmm. a mind shift change, but it really made a difference to me. It's like, oh, I'm curating an evening. Mm. So then I'm thinking about like, okay, not just like, can I fill these four slots or whatever, right. but okay, this, this team is this kind of thing and they do this and this team. And then that became a much more of a creative endeavor trying to put together. We had a couple of theme nights that were really fun. And then the I thought tried to make the hours as, as different and diverse as possible and mm-hmm. sort of maybe highlight teams that really weren't being highlighted other places and stuff. And uh, just, uh, you know, just sort of mix it up. So it wasn't like a, coming out of the, out of the starting blocks, I definitely stumbled and I had booked um, two shows that were all white mostly maybe two women and like mostly male, but uh-huh. I was trying, I thought those were, those were shows that had, had been successful at IO. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping to sort of like get a jump start on that sort of like commercial end of it. But I didn't have that bigger vision. I definitely stumbled coming out of the blocks and people mm-hmm. definitely let me know. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And stick with us. We're going to, we're going to do better. And, and then, and that was sort of like helped me really make that transition into curating shows. And that really helped me as a person and as an improviser to seek out different shows, to seek Mm -hmm. out different things that I maybe hadn't, hadn't even seen or whatever, you know? And so uh, that was really super game changer for me. That made a big difference. So if you're doing that, I think about that, think about curating evenings, think about sort of what do you want your stage to show or represent and, um, and I think that's really important. You know, it's, it's the intersection of art and commerce, but we really need to sort of have that bigger vision. I think it makes a big difference. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, I have to talk about this. I, I oh, have gosh. to bring this up. You, okay. you and the other Beer Shark Mike guys were on Family Feud. You're on Celebrity <laughs> Family Feud. That's, that's true. That was not <laughs> our best moment, for sure. Well, I'll fun. tell you. <laughs> I mean, I it was a surprise to me that you all were on because I just saw that I saw Zach Braff post about it and Donald Faison post about being on on Instagram. So I was like, well, I'm going to put that in my calendar. I'm going to check that out. And then it was like, I didn't even see who they were going up against. So then when <laughs> the day of, when I saw that it was you all, I thought, this is fantastic. Because, yeah. I mean, as a comedy nerd, as an improv nerd, to see this on national television, I just love that exposure for, <laughs> for Beer Shark Mice. Um, you mentioned that uh, it wasn't one of your best moments. I, I, you you all did lose, but that's the tough thing about Family Feud because you started so strong, yes. but that last guess is so hard because it's yeah. always the one that the dumb people who did the survey <laughs> said. So it's you all seem like really smart guys, so it, it seemed like it was probably uh, going to be an uphill battle to get that that one it was that last definitely one. it was definitely tough for sure and the the heartbreaker was like on that last on the first round which was really sort of the the beginning of the end for us yeah uh, in, the, in that first round i knew what that last i had a thought of what that last answer was but i couldn't like i was trying to be like to pete <laughs> but i couldn't kind of communicate it to him which i really wanted to do and then the other team uh, you know they they did a, a stellar job they really killed they it really did, but, yeah, they, yeah. but they have to sort of come up with that one answer and we you know we tried to we could and when in the next round we tried to come up with that one answer we couldn't but it was like oh darn it but it's like it's so heartbreaking you're like oh i think it's gonna be this and then it was that you're like gosh darn it darn it but uh, I yeah, wish it was, it was closer. Fun. Yeah, but me too. I, oh my gosh, at least closer. <laughs> and Steve Harvey was really fantastic and super charming and really. Yeah. Good. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was wondering what that experience was like uh, meeting him because I, I he knew some things about people who were on, on the team that I was like, yeah. oh, cool. Steve Steve Harvey's familiar with, with the shows that they've been on. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, my guess is he probably gets prepped by the producers. Yeah, to help him. for sure. That, but he was he was super charming, super engaged. And sort of uh, what I thought was really interesting that I didn't know was like between takes, um, when the cameras would stop down, he would like really talk to the audience. It was like really engaged with the right. audience and like really sort of funny and inspirational. And like all of a sudden he was like, really, he's there for it. He, he's not he just like a great MC, honestly. Yeah, sometimes when you're like, on a show or do shows or whatever, when the camera stopped down, everyone kind of like powers down and he like yeah. powers up and he goes to yeah. another level and like sort of dials back for the show. <laughs> he's, no, that he's, is something <laughs> when I've seen a live show, you know, the, the thing that people don't see is where that person's brilliance really is. Cause I've seen Fallon sort of just, and, and Seth Meyers sort of shoot the breeze with the audience. And it's like, wow, they're really, they're really good at keeping us engaged and uh and laughing in a time that's probably nerve-wracking to do it yeah and i think that sort of for me what, what i thought when i've hosted things before here and there I, I i like to do that too because it keeps me engaged and keeps it's like mm -hmm. one continuous show or whatever rather than okay we do this and we stop down and then we kind of right. start over and you can see like it's not like you know sort of humps or jumps of energy it's like one giant arc of energy and yeah he was really great he kept us all jazzed up and laughing and nice. stuff and he was really really funny that's really fun. fun well we've unfortunately reached the end of the episode but i feel what? like this yeah i know 
we've packed so much into this. It's been a really a, a gem of a conversation for me. I really appreciate your coming on. Um, but let's create something together. Let's and do I, it. I have a couple of ideas. One idea would be if you were to write another book, like what kind of a, what approach might it be? But I don't necessarily know how we could create that together. We talked about principles. We talked about bouncing around to different places to learn different things. So maybe we could hash out what that is, or we can do an improv scene and, and um, showing what like kind of showing triangle of the scene. And you can even side coach me. So we can really do, like show the audience what that is like. Um, I th- I would love to do a scene. That would be super fun. Awesome. But I can address some of the other things really quick. I actually did write a second book. It's totally free. It's in my Instagram bio. It's five things that improvisers can do to stay creative, have fun, uh, and it's uh, it's totally free. It's just uh, something I wrote so that people could still do improv during. Uh, you know, quarantine when they're at home, it focuses on, on what you can do alone. Uh, I am writing another book about the improvised movie, which is, as you know, my passion. Oh, and so yeah. I'm sort of working on that. Um, yeah. And then I think sort of in terms of like the answer to your other question, of like when people are bouncing around, like you said, just follow, follow your interests. Like you, that once you start a program, you don't have to finish it. And I think sort of uh, what I always tell people is go and see the shows. If you like the show that's on stage, that kind of says something about what they value and the approach that they have. And mm. you're like, Oh, I really love that show. Cause when I saw the family, I was like, I really love that work. I want to do that work in particular. And so that I was, nothing was stopping me from getting in there and doing that. Mm, very cool. That's really good advice. Um, yeah. I think people should check out like something that is inspiring them as much as they can because that keeps them engaged with that and and you'll learn more. For sure. And, you know, any artistic journey has like its ups and downs and trials and tribulations. So if you have that initial fire, Mm-hmm. It, it, it's like a lighthouse. And so you keep orienting towards that. This is what turned me on about it. This is what I really love about it. And that can keep you uh, sort of nourish you during the yeah. down creative times, you know, but if you just like, well, I'm just going to go here. Cause I feel like this is my route to SNL or whatever. It's tough, man. It's like, yeah. there's e- easier ways to make a buck than being an artist. Like for sure. For sure. Yeah. And it's also, when I hear that sort of thing of like uh, someone talking about how somebody would say like, well, how do I get to SNL? Um, I- I've heard so many people who are on SNL say how like that's just not the right approach because you when you're at the theater or at the school learning, that's what you need to be focused on in that moment, not yeah. how you're going to get to SNL because, you know, it's it's not that clear of a trajectory. For sure. And there's plenty of great people who've auditioned for SNL who've not made it. Right. So, like it's, it's not about that. You have to really enjoy the journey along the way and, mm-hmm. and, and just focus on doing good work. I mean, you know, as Steve Martin said, be so good. They can't ignore you, you know? Right. Right. And that's about being good and, and inspired in a very genuine way, which it, yeah. it feels disingenuine to me to, to go to a place and say like, well, how do I become rich and famous? Like that seems less genuine and and so you are it not only is it hard to have that kind of success but you're making it harder by not just doing it the legit way just do it the legit way Um, right for sure so yeah let's do a scene let's do a scene uh, that sounds great yeah so uh uh i'm very rusty especially with the mindset of the triangle of the scene so um 
I uh, am totally on board with you side coaching <laughs> to exemplify triangle of the scene in the best ways. But if you don't want to do it during the scene, that's totally fine. I'm on Can I Get a right now to get okay. suggestions. Uh, what kind of suggestions should we get? Um, how it can about, be location, relationship, or just a word. How about a location? Sounds great. Okay. Wedding reception. Wedding reception. Great. Fantastic. Hey, hey, Tom, nice to see you again. Oh, hey. Hey, Jerry. I didn't, uh, I didn't know you were going to be here. <laughs> I know. I know, Tom. Yeah. Everyone likes you and you're, you're at every party. So I'm sure it's no big deal for you to be here. Oh, I, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I was out last night with everybody. That's why I'm holding my stomach because I had, we had a fun night. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. I, uh, sorry you didn't make it out, but, uh, yeah. Well, no, I, we, honestly, I was, I, I, I kind of wasn't invited, but it's not, <laughs> not surprised. I mean, I wasn't invited to this wedding. I just heard about it and I came and. Oh, if you were in tuxedo, you can just get yeah. in. I just thought maybe I could <laughs> reconnect with some of my old friends, you know. Well, you know, Veronica and uh, and 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 Jerry, Tyler. Jerry, uh, yeah. Uh, also, going to be happy to see you. I'm sure. I'm sure the your. I'm sure your thing just got lost in the mail. Um, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Veronica, I know has something against me. She, we, you know, we dated. We well, we went on a couple of dates in college, yeah. and she. You know, she at the end just said, I don't want to go out with you anymore because I hate you. So oh. I was like, no, feedback taken. <laughs> wow, feedback wow. taken. I get it. I get it. Jerry's off the list. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I dated Veronica's sister for many years and then dated Veronica <sighs> for many years. And, you know, I had to end both of those relationships because I just knew I knew there was something else out there for me that was uh, even. You know. And you knew there's something out there for them. You knew I'm not the perfect one. There are perfect numbers out there. Their pot has a lid, and it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Selfless. Right. That's who you are. Selfless. Hey, you know what? I when I I just remember I was toasting them last night right before I picked up the bill. I said, "Gang, you're gonna. You are so perfect for each other. It's why I introduced you. And uh, while I knew it was understood." That I should definitely be here at this wedding. I, I at first wasn't gonna come because I didn't want to open up old old wounds. But you know, right. seeing you here now just knows that those wounds have healed with uh, each other, and that's just great for you. Well, I'll tell you what, Instagram was lighting up with your toast. Best toast ever. Hashtag best toast ever. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Somebody a put it on TikTok and now I have a million followers on there. It's oh, wild. Must wild. be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Must I didn't even nice. start it. Someone else started the TikTok account for me last night just to post that. So yeah. I just sort of got this account with a bunch of followers. And uh, I'm actually recording this right now. And uh oh. I, I bet it's going to be another hit. <laughs> cool. Well, can I can I Ooh. say a little something to the TikTokers? Yeah, uh, you know what? I don't know that. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. trying to you're keep right. on you brand. Know, probably, <laughs> probably better. Probably better. Yeah, probably better. You're right. You're right. <laughs> uh, so, anyway. um, you got a place to sleep tonight, or maybe extra bed or something? I don't. Just yeah. kind of hitchhiked up here when I heard the thing was happening, and. 
I never plan uh, where I'm going to stay. It always just, I always just end up staying with one of the bridesmaids. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, right, right. Well. So yes oh, and you... no, I have a place to stay tonight. Right. I get it. I get it. Well, I, I think they don't totally lock this place up at night, so maybe I could, uh, you know, sleep under one of the tables or something. Sure. <laughs> be better when they... I didn't sleep in. <laughs> oh, wow. Has it been that tough? This last yeah, it's been pretty week. tough. Oh. Pretty bad. Pretty yeah, bad. I'm not gonna lie. Pretty bad. No, I'm not gonna lie either. It's been pretty good for me. Yeah. Um, well, I know. I've been following you on LinkedIn and Instagram oh, yeah. and Facebook and all the. It's crazy. It's like uh, congratulations on the promotion, by the way. Oh, you're very welcome. I mean, I never thought that I would become president and CEO of a company within a month of working yeah. here. Just yeah. as the vice president, I was there. I wasn't even supposed. To, it was. It was really vice president with air quotes. They just wanted me on board, and I said, "Sure, I'll take a paycheck." And they gave it to me, and then they promoted me. So hey. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, oh, uh, Veronica just saw me. I, I really need to yeah. get going. So uh, yeah. Congratulations, you know, on all the great uh, tidings, and, uh, successes, mm. and. I'll uh, maybe I'll see you around your neighborhood. Yeah, two fifty four Magnolia, right? Yeah. Uh, cool. See you there. You know I wish I could say the same, but uh, you know what, Tom? I think I, I have a good feeling about you. You know, I oh. always said this guy. He's got about twenty, twenty five more years to cook, and he's gonna be something. <laughs> well, good. Tell my doctor because he says I don't have that long. So. Oh. All right. Well, I got to go. They're calling security. So uh, great catching up. See you around old Magnolia. Yeah. Take care. Okay. (laughs) I have to move. See. (laughs) Now, um, I think we both had clear personalities there. Uh, Sure. Guy who's uh, not doing so down on his luck. Guy who's super lucky with life and and super confident. Uh, for no reason, even. <laughs> yeah, I think sort of for for me, like the the it sort of starts with like that you say that first line or whatever, and then uh, you sort of had a very affable sort of like I said, hey Tom, great to see you. Hey Todd, what great to see you. And then you had a very affable. So I sort of like generally in the work, I, I sort of see that vibe to that person. Maybe I mm-hmm. come in with something, or whatever. But I see that vibe, and I, you were so nice. I was like, oh people always love you. Of course you're doing great. And then sort of in the, to give a note, sorry, but if if I had my druthers, if you say that, that big playable gift back towards me, something towards me, then I play that. I chose to be down on my luck guy, just sort of in opposition to you, just to foil each of those, make that, that dichotomy really clear, but that's fine. If you, if your partner doesn't give it to you, give it to yourself. And then once those things are super clear, Mm -hmm. then it's like, it's all gravy. It's super easy after that. Cause then we're just like, ping-ponging it back and forth on on those ideas you know how did how did you feel about it i felt i felt good about it i did immediately get in my head uh because i i i think just being i've only done zoom prob in the last year and it's been weird um and so i've gotten more and more in my head maybe more than i already was uh before covid but uh i was immediately like oh i called him tom now we're Tom and Jerry. Did I just do that? Like, you know, like, oh, I didn't mean to do that. 
Uh, that's just the name that came out. Oh no, I gave you're J you were Jerry. I was Tom. I think that was. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, um, and so I was like getting in my head, and then oh. uh, I also have a tendency to pick up on things, but not voice it in a clear way. And I, mm -hmm. I'll I'm playing towards it, but it doesn't necessarily help my partner if they don't hear me voice it. And like eventually, you're like, okay, he's using the gift I gave myself and he's working right. with that, but it does go a lot smoother from the, from the get go. If I can gift you with that at right off the bat, as soon as 100%. we observe it. And I, this is one of the hardest things to, 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 to get people to do is not just think it, but to say it out loud. Right. Saying it out loud is so important because it, it is a promise Mm -hmm. that you make out loud to your partner and to the audience. And once that promise right. is made, it's much easier to deliver it on, deliver mm -hmm. on it. And once you're like, if you're just having it inside, you're like, well, I, I knew what my thing was, or I thought this. And I'm like, uh, oh, it's upset. well, then just say that, say that out loud. But it just sounds weird. Well, if you say it like, if you say it weird, then it sounds weird, right? When people say like, <laughs> right. you are the greediest person in this office. <laughs> that sounds weird. But you're like, gosh, darn it, Jerry, you are the greediest person in this office. You take every donut every time. Right. <laughs> then it's just it's a part of the dialogue. And it's also that big playable gift that, that uh -huh. we need. But once the, once that game of our two things rubbing up against each other was established, then then we were ready to go. And we were right. I thought also really fun that we weren't the bride or the groom or whatever. Just <laughs> yeah. two just two guests. So we had like some latitude to move mm -hmm. around. We're not we don't have other responsibilities or whatever. And, you know, that's something that that I, I heard Nick Napier talk about like what else like I mean, when you're at a wedding except wedding reception you think of the bride and groom who else is there caterers right. guests maybe an mm -hmm. unwanted guest this sort of thing it really opens up when we sort of explore different um different sort of pop, pop ways to populate that space or whatever you know yeah. yeah yeah I that was one of the things about the there's a form that we are playing here called the Avente that is all about populating that space and you can have the scene with the bride and groom but we're gonna have to do other scenes that have other people so sure it, it's a good uh thing to think about a lot when you're doing scene work is to think about like who else is populating this world um yeah it sounds like a good trick for gifting somebody so that it doesn't sound weird is to have an emotional response to it Sure. Sure. Uh, and that, that, yeah. that initial gift, this is one of the things people ask the most questions about is where does that initial gift come from? And it can come from a variety of places. It can come from the opening or mm -hmm. some or a monologue or something. You bring sort of an emotion or a gift or an idea from that. That's really works. There's also a little practice that I do that I did in this called reading your partner, right? Mm -hmm. Your partner sort of gives off an emotion or a vibe or whatever. And you just name that vibe. You name the thing they're mm -hmm. already doing. There's an improv tip about it called reading your partner. And uh, you just read that vibe and you name it. And suddenly that's the thing, right? That person is like maybe stumbled coming on stage like, wow, <laughs> somebody's a little bit, uh, a little bit anxious to get in here or whatever. <laughs> and all of a sudden that person, yes, ands that, then that's their character. They're anxious. Right. Yeah. Everyone's really on the overly, same page. Yeah, totally. And just naming it, just name. Like again, I'll come back to the power of naming. Once you name it, that tool, that big playable gift, that whatever, once you name it, it becomes like this, this object, this artifact that you can use in a much more deliberate sort of way. There it is. Well, there it oh. is. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Paul. 
Thanks. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. I really have enjoyed the uh, so many of the other episodes, and I'm uh, excited to dig more into it. That was super nice of him to say. I hope you dig more into the podcast, too. If this was your first time listening, we are found just about anywhere you get podcasts. We're now on Spotify. So if we are listening to it now, you can probably figure out where to find us. Get his book, Triangle of the Scene, on Amazon. I think it's one of the best improv books to read. Also, get his ebook, Five Things Improvisers Can Do to Stay Creative, Feel Inspired, and Have Fun. Links and bio to those. Follow Paul on Twitter and Instagram. It's at What's Up with PV on Facebook and YouTube. It's at PV Improv. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod and on YouTube at There It Is. And go to ThereItIsPod.com for more info. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 